HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening. And welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm joined on the line by Julie Guthman. She's a professor of social sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is an award-winning author. Her new book, Wilted, Pathogens, Chemicals, and the Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry, tells a story of how the industry came to rely on soil fumigants and the ensuing repercussions. And I'm so pleased that this book has brought her to the show today. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, okay, so I, I have like a million questions about why strawberries specifically, but okay. um, <laughs> can you first tell us uh, your what made you decide to want to write this book? Well, I, I got involved in this the research that went into this book um, when there was this heated battle over the um, registration of a soil fumigant called methyl iodide. And methyl iodide was supposed to replace methyl bromide, which has been used in the strawberry production for oh, 50 or so years, and it's used in combination with other chemicals, but it's mainly used to control soil disease as well as weeds and nematodes. Um, but it was um, taken off. Um, it was no longer allowed to be used because it's a ozone-depleting chemical that was phased out by the Montreal Protocol on, on ozone-depleting substances. 
So methyl iodide was introduced as a replacement chemical, and it met a, a heated regulatory battle because it's far more toxic, actually, than methyl bromide. Mm-hmm. So I was really intrigued by the regulatory battle because I've been following food movements for a long time, and for the first time I saw a broad coalition of actors, um, public health, farm worker groups, anti-pesticide groups, um, uh, foodies get involved to, to fight methyl iodide. So that was like the initial research. It was to understand what, what was going into the regulatory battle around methyl iodide. Mm-hmm. But it was taken off the market during, my, uh, during the first phase of research, and, but I was already starting to speak to growers about what they were going to do without, without methyl iodide, and then there was also tighter restrictions on other fumigants that they've been using. And so I just started talking to growers more broadly about how th- their future and and you know how how reliant the, their system was on fumigants and um at that point i mean at some point i realized there was a book a book in here as i saw all the kind of really deep connections mm-hmm. um among all the elements of the strawberry production system um was this book a departure so you've written a few um a few in the past was this like a departure from your previous work or kind of a natural next step um, it, I, it was neither a departure nor a natural next step. I mean, um, all of my books have been about the changing conditions of possibilities for food transformation. And, um, I mean, I my first book was about the or- political economy of organic farming in California, and I talked about strawberries a little bit in that book as well. And so this was in some ways more of a return to that book because I've, I'm really – I'm a geographer and I'm deeply interested in California agriculture and the role that land values, for example, play, which was very much present in the, in the original organics book and was present in this book as well. So I would say it was kind of coming full circle in a way. Are you from California? I am from California. So these topics are maybe – near and dear more near and dear to your heart for sure for sure i mean all of my all of my writing is very much based in california and i've i've been here my entire life and i know the place very well <laughs> <laughs> um okay so it's couple like two parts basically about mm-hmm. strawberries um why like this you know industry in particular of all the specialty crops is it because they've had such an Im- image problem in the past well, strawberries. Um, I, I think it's many reader, many of your listeners might be surprised to know that strawberries are a very high value and an important crop in California. It's the fourth most important crop in terms of value produced in California, which is really significant. I mean, specialty crops have always been significant in California. Oranges, many you know, hundreds of year, hundred years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but strawberries are now way up there, along with almonds, which I, I'm, you know, <laughs> is your next book. Press. But strawberries <laughs> <laughs> and, and almonds and strawberries get a lot of press, right? But yeah. strawberries are um, probably the most, not probably, they are the most intensive um, chemical, re- they use the most intensive chemical regime of any other crop. Um, and so they've gotten a lot of attention for that. They've, and strawberries have gotten a lot of attention for the labor conditions, which are very difficult. So it's it's kind of a it's a beleaguered industry, mm-hmm. but it's also really fascinating. Um, and you know, you talk to many people within the industry, and they say this is a crazy industry. It's just <laughs> so it's it's pretty it's fascinating. And you know, and I and also it's. Um, Strawberries are grown near, very close to the coast of California, and my campus where I work is um, 
in a, a county that is a strawberry growing area. And so, so those who live by the coast are very familiar with strawberry landscapes. Why is this industry crazier than most? Um, well, why is it crazy? You're like, well, that's the premise of my book. But. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. I mean, there's just, I mean, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, because there has been so much pressure, pressure on the industry. Um, and because I think some of the things I address in the book about all the challenges facing the industry are, are just so heated and interrelated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I would like, I mean, there's a lot of infighting within the industry too, but I don't, I don't really get into that. And that's not like my concern. Yeah. <laughs> And when we talk about strawberries, is there one dominant variety, like the Cavendish, you know, variety of bananas? No, there's about uh, any given time. That, that's a complex question. At any given time, there's probably 15, I would say, that are routinely used. Um, um, and there's a bunch of things that go that are go on with the varieties. I mean, first of all, there's different varieties grown in different regions of the state because some have been bred to be um, like what are called short-day varietals. So they've been bred to work well in the winter months when the days are shorter. Mm-hmm. So those are grown in the southern part of the state. Um, so they can they can have start having strawberries pretty early on, like February. Um, and then there's the day-neutral varieties that tend to be grown further north. So there's that big difference, but then there's also... Some are bred more for size, and some are bred more for productivity. And then there's also the difference between the University of California and breeds a, a, a lot of strawberries, and but so do like um, there's a lot of pr- uh, proprietary breeders that worked for Driscolls and well picked, and then independently as well. So there's um, but so in any given moment, there's probably 12 different varieties that are used pretty routinely. Okay. All right. So um, I want to get some terms straight before we continue. And I apologize if this is, if these are like rudimentary, (laughs) Um, you know, questions, but uh, like what, when you talk about like, what are the differences between fumigation, pesticides, fertilizers, and especially in terms of kind of how they work and what their role has been? Okay, so fumigation, fumigants are used before any plants are planted to to disinfect the soil of soil disease, but also, as I said, they they also control weeds and nematodes, which are little tiny worms. So they are, and they're gaseous material, so they are gaseous because they have to blast through the soil to get through it all. Hmm. And so they are a class of pesticides, but we often people think about pesticides as things that go, they're sprayed right. um, when the plants are already um, in production. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case here. And, that, and that's really significant because, like, around these regulatory battles around fumigants, you, you've had a lot of consumer reactions saying, I don't want your pesticide residue, you know, strawberries in my kids' cereal or whatever. But they're... Yeah. There's no residue. They're not. There's no residues associated with fumigants. So that makes sense. So, um, with you mentioned methyl uh, bromide, that's a fumigant, and is that yes. is that still in use today, or is that like effectively totally phased out? It was phased out in all but three uses, um, and so it's still used in the nurseries. And the nurseries are a very different business than fruit production. 
And the reason it's still allowed in nurseries is because of international laws around, around clean plants. Like they don't like people don't want plants that have disease being shipped all over the world. Okay. So it's still allowed um, under a particular exemption to the um, phase out of the Montreal Protocol. Okay. All right. So thank you for, you know, those terms. Um, I actually have one more um, that we're going to, I'm going to ask in a minute, but um, when did the industry, in your opinion, become like so problematic? Um, You talk about the emergence of the soil pathogen. Um, I might not pronounce this right. So verticillium. Dolly. <laughs> Dolly. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is a pathogen. So that was uh, my second right. question is like, what's the difference between a pathogen and a, and a pest? So a pathogen, I mean, uh, again, pests we associate with insects. Mm-hmm. So pathogens that have to do with soil disease. So verticillium is a, fun- a fungus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a soil borne fungus that the way it hurts the plant is it um, is it it attaches to the roots and and the plant uptakes the fungus and and in, into the root and it and so then the, the fungus actually expands within the plant and it and it prevents the plant from uptaking nutrients and water and the and the plant eventually wilts and then dies. So it's, the problem is called verticillium wilt. Okay. And is this was this like the um, the starting off point, like the kind of like the precursor to all of these issues that the industry started experiencing? Yeah. Yeah. So the strawberry industry was a very, it wasn't an industry. It was, you know, there were strawberry growers in California as early as about the 1860s. Um, and there was, there were some, you know, so people had strawberry patches and they were shipping to San Francisco, but it was a really limited market. But by the turn of the 20th century, more people were growing strawberries. And about by the 1920 or so, there was enough acreage that um, that that farmers or growers were starting to see um, problems with different kinds of diseases. I mean, they saw the, the the plants would wilt or the leaves would turn yellow. So they had a bunch of different experiences with diseases, and that's because they were leaving these strawberry plants in the ground year after year, and the um, the fungi like Verticillium dahlia, um, le- like they stick around when there's a host that they like, and so they, they continue in, to infect the plant. So it was around the 1920s, 1930s that strawberry, the, the kind of burgeoning strawberry industry, called on the University of California to start helping them figure out what they were, what these diseases were, and what they were going to do with them. So it's so yeah, so they were so they started seeing a lot of disease in the 20s and 30s. And has that just the problem is just exacerbated since then? Well, um, what happened is when they called on the University of California, and that it was somebody, a plant pathologist at UC Berkeley, who figured out that it was verticillium, a, a member of the verticillium family that was causing this particular problem in strawberries. And verticillium is a very widely spread um, fungus; it's everywhere, but it's only a problem when you're there's a host, you know, when you're trying to replant the same plant year after year. I mean, it's in weeds all over, but, you know, we, no one cares about weeds. Uh-huh. So, um, so they, their first, what they first started to do is, is to try to breed for um, disease resistance. I mean, they, they actually, before that, they recommended a bunch of different things. Strawberry growers, like they said, 
they told them to water more, which actually made it worse. I mean, they, they had a lot of bad advice at the very beginning, but then they started a breeding program, um, and they released their first five university varieties in 1945, only a couple which were really disease-resistant, but the farmers actually went for the more productive varieties. But then they... Um, but. So they've continued to see problems with disease, and then it was in the late 50s that they started experimenting with the low-ground fumigation. And they first used another chemical called chloropicrin, and it was effective but expensive, and then they combined that with methyl bromide, and these two chemicals together um, really worked well. And so by the early 60s, growers were had adopted the combination of these two chemicals, and that really allowed the strawberry industry to expand. Um, and then a lot of the problems after that had to do with too much um, supply because growers were getting really good at growing strawberries. They, they became more and more productive. Mm-hmm. And so then they had to figure out how to market them. And a lot of, a lot of the, the strawberries in the 60s and 70s were going toward um, freezer uses, toward processing markets for jams and for you know, they they freeze them and mm-hmm. for also processing, um, and they don't. And so strawberries really don't become really big in until the last twenty or so years, or twenty or thirty years, and when the fresh market really takes off. Um. Okay. So, by the way, have you heard of Harry's berries? Yes. <laughs> From California, <laughs> what is your take yeah. on them? I'm just curious. They're Are, tasty. They're, they're tasty. very tasty. I've been trying to figure out what variety. Actually, I went up to their stand in Santa Monica and asked them what variety it was. And it was, um, I don't remember. I was actually surprised by what variety it was. They have a... But they're, they're mainly in Southern California and I'm in Northern California. Yes. But they're tasty, but they're really expensive. Yes. But, you know... They are really yeah. expensive. Um, yeah. Okay. So, sorry, I had to ask because they're like all the rage when, you know, there's very few sellers who can yeah. get them um, here in yeah. New York. And when they do, they, they sell out and they sell for like yeah. $15 a carton or something. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out exactly what what makes them so good because as I remember, I, I, I don't remember the variety, but it wasn't a variety that I thought was particularly interesting. Right. They, I mean, I, no, no, I don't know. I don't know like their main kind of variety. I've had, um, I, they've, they've produced a couple different ones that I've tasted. Yeah. I think it was like yeah. the Marie de Bois was one of them, but, um, not yeah. like their main one anyways. Yeah. I'm always yeah. curious. Um, I yeah. figured you were the person to ask. <laughs> Yeah. So much about the industry. Um, okay. So, so it was, so it has the use of these, um, of the fumigants really ramped up in the past, well, 10 years because it has been outlawed for about 10 years. Well, methyl bromide was, um, supposed to be, I mean, they, it started, they started to see more regulatory concern about it in the late nineties. Um, it was supposed to be phased out by 2005 and then, um, with um, the U- U.S. fought hard to keep it around, saying it was a critical use for the strawberry industry. So, methyl bromide wasn't really phased out of fruit production until 2017. For the last oh. few years, there were only very uh, minute um, amounts that were released for use. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but chlorpicrin, which was the chemical that was used often in combination with methyl bromide, started to see increases. Um, so growers, some growers say it works just as well. Um, some say it doesn't. There's actually been, um, since methyl bromide has ceased being used, we're, there's, the growers are starting to see 
um, new pathogens appear besides verticillium dahlia, um, and you know they attribute it to the loss of methyl bromide. I think there's arguments to be made that it could be other things, but um, yeah, good times. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the I mean one of the things you do a really good job of in this book, I think, is outlining like why farmers feel they have little choice to, but to use chemicals in the name of you know, protecting their crops. Can you unpack a little bit, can you unpack this a little bit and kind of explain how they're being squeezed at both ends of the supply chain? Well, sure. I mean, they're being squeezed by, um, I mean, there's only a small handful of buyers that that buy from from growers, Um, Driscoll's and Giant and Well-Picked and there's even um, uh, then a bunch of kind of private label ones, but they, that's really consolidated. But the, I mean, one of the way one of the ways that the shippers operate is they grade the strawberries very, um, very stringently. Um, and so, if a strawberry isn't the right size or has a blemish or is, is not, you know, the right shape, they're not allowed to sell it. And then they, you know, and they, and they, of course. Ask growers, I mean, they don't pay all that well for their strawberries because there's constant gluts of strawberries. Um, so, yeah, so that, but that's true of all agriculture, really. Um, and in the book, I really try to go beyond those arguments about the squeezes mm-hmm. um, between, <laughs> between the suppliers of, of, of inputs and the shippers, I mean, because that's a standard, standard argument mm-hmm. in um, the political economy of agriculture. What I'm really trying to show in the book is that is that growers have a hard time getting around fumigants because the whole production system has been built around the presumption that those fumigants will be available. So, for instance, land values. I, I mean, agricultural land values are always calibrated to the what can be grown effectively on that land, and the strawberry land is expensive, um, and it's based on the presumption that strawberry growers are growing strawberries on the same land year after year in the same blocks, which mm-hmm. can only happen with fumigation because otherwise you'd get terrible soil disease. So fumigation allowed growers to plant yearly, um, and, the, and the land values were calibrated to that. And on top of that, strawberry I, I mentioned to you that strawberries are grown in the coastal areas of California. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, I mean, those of you who've been to California know that summers in California on the coast are not really warm. We get the natural air conditioning of the Pacific Ocean bringing Mm -hmm. fog many, many mornings. And strawberries like that natural air conditioning, and so do suburbanites. And so strawberry growers are competing with urban developers for this prime coastal land. So the land... The, like kind of the land values enough and land scarcity for strawberry is really putting pressure on growers. Um, what, what are some of the other political economic like forces at play that contribute to this situation? Um, well, I mean, another huge one is the la- labor shortages. So the strawberry industry is very, very labor intensive and has been for a long time because um, to, even though they're working on robots now to, to harvest strawberries, um, right now almost all strawberries are are Hand-picked. harvested by hand. Yeah, and um, 
and it's it's it, it's crummy work. Um, um, workers are bent over while they're picking, and they're expected to work extremely fast. And the strawberry uh, industry has long used um, piece rates as a way to encourage high productivity, so they pay um, workers by the box. Hmm. Um, but thanks to uh, our immigration policies and border policies, we're starting to see shortages of labor and people who um, it, people come to strawberries first because it's a an entry level position. But when there's better jobs elsewhere in other fruits or in in construction or, or what have you, people don't come to strawberries. So the strawberry industry is facing a labor shortage. That's been um, and and I should say um, that labor costs are going up quite a bit in California because. Strawberry uh, agricultural workers are no longer exempt from overtime laws. Wow. Um, yeah, and workers' comp is way up. And so, I mean, so legitimately, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I think the workers have, you know, it's a, it's a very challenging job, but the, it's also really challenging for the growers to pay the cost of labor. So what will that result? Just higher prices and fewer, like, further consolidation? Is that something you project? Well, that's... It's hard to say. Um, probably, I mean, all all the things I talk about in the book. I talk about a set of challenges for strawberries, including the um, increased regulation, including higher labor costs, including high high land costs. All of those are will could well raise the price. But on the other hand, it's this weird this weird paradox that strawberry prices tend to be really low because strawberry producers overproduce. In 2018, even though acreage had shrunk and people, a lot of people had gone out of business, there is like this squeeze going on. Mm -hmm. Their high per acre productivity was the highest ever, and the tonnage was, I think, the highest ever. So this is weird paradox that the strawberry growers are complaining about all these things that are squeezing them, and yet are producing more and more and keeping their prices down. But so it's kind of unclear what's going to happen. <laughs> it's it's anyone's guess. Okay, so I'm going to take a really quick commercial break um, to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, I want to go through some of the, the solutions, potential solutions that you um, outline in the book. So stay tuned. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. 
Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm joined by Julie Guthman, um, who's talking all about her new book, Wilted, Pathogens, Chemicals, and the Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry. Okay, Julie, so before break, I wanted to I said that we want to go through kind of some of the solutions that you outline right. in the book and how none of them are, are the sil- <laughs> not none of them might work. None of them are the silver, right. silver bullet. Um, right. So what, what are some of those? Well, what growers would most like would, is like a drop-in replacement for methyl bromide, like another chemical that could work just as well as methyl bromide. Um, and so far, that's not really happening. The California Department of Pesticide Regulation is not very willing to um, introduce chemicals that, that have not proven to be safer than the existing alternatives. So, well, um, I mean, you never know with our current administration that could be changing. Yeah, but California has stricter pesticide laws. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I'm just kidding. By a lot. It's um, <laughs> good. And, you know, I mean, they might try to, of course, you know, with the existing administration, they may try to eradicate states' rights around these things altogether. Right. They're trying to do it with car safety, but, or car, you know, emissions. Yeah. yeah. Gas emissions, thank you. Yeah. No, um, I know. I'm being really yeah. dark. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's what growers are most want. Um, there have also been a lot of um, research, including coming from my university, in non-chemical forms of disinfestation. So there's one that's called anaerobic soil disinfestation, which involves injecting a carbon source into the soil along with a lot of water and covering it with plastic, and it creates anaerobic conditions that can kind of out-compete the um, the fungus, the mm-hmm. fungi, um, and that's proven to be, I mean, the, uh, we, the results aren't in yet. We don't know. I mean, it seems to work sometimes. It really hasn't been brought to scale yet. Like, like you know, some of these branches are, you know, 40 acres or 80 acres. And so I think it's been, people have been trying it on a couple acres. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a tricky one, right? Because it's, I mean, the carbon source, so they use like molasses or rice bran, you know, the rice that it could, could be you that it could go into this could be grown under highly toxic conditions. We don't know. Um, but also to, to inject water in a state that's very drought prone. And I can tell you right now it's uh, worth three weeks or so without rain here again. So um, it's frightening again. Yeah. So that, so that's a tough one. Um, do, but, do, know, do strawberries require yeah. a lot of water to grow? No, strawberries don't require a lot of water to grow. Most of the growers use well water. Um, the the big water problems that you hear about in California, in terms of like um, the overdrafting of, is mainly in the Central Valley where they grow the almonds and 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 uh, alfalfa and all these other things. But so strawberry growers are in a region where they use well water, but this is. This is injecting water into the system just as a mode of fumigation or disinfestation. Okay. Um, There's also a lot of interest. I mean, when pressed, if you ask growers, what are you going to do if they take away fumigants, there's a lot of interest in um, soilless systems, Mm -hmm. um, which is right now they're talking about soilless systems like doing it in trays at field level. 
Um, so what they do, would do is put, you have trays with their, like lined with plastic or something, and then you put a, a, a soilless medium in them to grow the strawberries. So it could be like coconut coir or peat moss. Um, and, and that's an interesting one because, I mean, there's two huge advantages of California strawberry production, and that is the climate and the soils. Because mm-hmm. there's sandy soil, strawberries like drained soils in the climate because you can grow strawberries near the, nearly 10 months of the year because of that natural air conditioning of the Pacific coast, coupled with, with strawberries that have been bred to last, to be, to be able to be harvested for 10 months of the year. So, um, so when you start growing in substrate, you're taking away one of California's advantages, even though the soil's the problem because it's a source of disease, but it's also... You know, you know why grow strawberries in California on very expensive land if you're not going to use that soil? So all you're getting at that point is the climate. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of resistance to that particular method among growers, who and it's also really expensive infrastructure to have this. Um, they're kind of like they call them field scale hydroponics because they're almost like hydroponics, although they're still in the field. Right. So. And that would surely shake out even more growers because of the expense. Okay. And then, of course, the system that everybody, um, many of your listeners will know about, be anxious to hear about, are these kind of more integrated systems that are um, organic, even though I should say that everything I've talked about so far is also organic. So there's, you know, organic covers a lot of different territory in strawberries, but... What I'm referring to here is more integrated systems where you're rotating strawberries with other crops, including broccoli, which happens to have mild fumigation properties and works well to control um, the pathogens and integrated systems. In such a system, strawberries are a minor crop. I mean, you can only grow strawberries in the same block maybe every three or four years rather than every year like they currently do. Mm -hmm. And so with high land values, that's really hard to pull off because people don't want to spend as much on broccoli as they do on strawberries. Plus, I mean, it's not only broccoli. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to fallow that land or compost it and all sorts of things where you're not getting um, a crop out of it every year. Um, Okay. So one of the things like, okay, growers want a new kind of chemical. I mean, some want a new kind of chemical, but yeah. isn't the whole yeah. reason we're in this mess because is because they're toxic, obviously, especially to the workers. Yeah. I mean, there's no residue on the on the plant, so right. isn't right? Don't they have like the most amount of you know harmful contact? Do do growers have the worst contact? Yeah, like yeah, or aren't, wouldn't they be at yeah. highest risk for for um, like but, a new kind of uh, fumigant? Well, the growers don't apply the fumigants. They have fumigation companies apply the fumigants, and those people, the, pe- the fumigation companies, have um, are completely suited up um, and have pretty intense safety protocols. So it's the problem with the fumigation is a, is the risk of drift. Mm-hmm. So when they fumigate the ground, they put plastic over it, but about plastic tears or or comes up and it gets in the wind. That's when workers are exposed. And then, so it was in, like largely environmental reasons why it was um, methyl bromide was originally banned. Or methyl restricted. bromide, yeah, methyl bromide was banned because it's an ozone depleter because it travels into the upper atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, it still had toxicity in the form of drift, but that's not what the regulatory battle is around because this other chemical I was talking about, methyl iodide, 
stayed close to the ground, therefore it wasn't an ozone depleter. Um, but that means it's more dangerous to communities and, and workers around it. And also chloropicrin that's still used is a toxic air contaminant and causes, it's like, it's tear gas, basically. Oh. So it causes people to vomit or tear up and get sick. So, yeah. Well, lovely. But the, yeah, so the, the, but the, 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 the issues are with drift accidents, not with the application generally. I mean, generally. Okay. okay. All right. So, um, yeah. so you talk about, so we talked about like new chemicals, anaerobic, um, creating anaerobic conditions. What about probiotics? Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, some they're of so, the, They're so hot right now. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And so some of, the, you know, the, the kind of things I'm talking about are more antibiotic, like trying to, to like, keep the, the disease from being there. But, you know, some growers are more interested in int- introducing um, suppressive um, biota into the soils. I mean, that's what integrated systems are doing too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in a truly integrated system, you're just having a, a biodiverse soil, and that supposedly outcompetes or can potentially outcompete the the, the pathogens. Um, but some people are also talking about just injecting soil amendments. That's kind of the equivalent of, of like eating a probiotic rather than having like a you know a, a very diverse diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that the results are that great for that as a mechanism. Okay. So basically, um, the other thing that you said at the start of the book is that um, neither you suspect that neither activists nor industry will be satisfied with your conclusions. So That's correct. <laughs> did that did that come to were you correct in your forecast? Um I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I'm not sure yet. I mean, people that read the book seem to really like it, but I, I haven't gotten enough feedback to, to know. Um, what are some of your What are some of your conclusions that you want people to take away? Oh, I want people to take away that it's not going to be. There's no that, that there are no easy solutions here. That we need to really look seriously at how we grow and how we produce food. Um, and we have to look really seriously at growing for productivity. There's still the sense that we need to be as productive as possible. And, you know, I, you know, the strawberry growers are complaining about low prices. And so maybe, um, you know, productivity isn't the answer. Um, and ultimately, we do need more integrated systems. And we, but we also need a – I mean, the other kind of major conclusion from the book that we haven't really talked about why I conclude this is we need – um, a science that can can develop integrated solutions because so much of agricultural science has been built around providing productivity mm-hmm. for farms rather than helping to understand the complexity by which we have something like a pathogen. Because like I said, verticillium is all over the place, and so it becomes a pathogen in particular circumstances. And so what else could be done to that soil to keep it at bay? In terms of technologies, this has historically been more of like what land grant universities are supposed to be working on, right? Correct. And has that changed? Has it become more proprietary in the past, you know, you know over the past few years? Well, sure. The land grant universities are encouraged to make money. And one of the things that's been going on with strawberries is, I mean, I, as I mentioned, the UC has been growing or producing strawberry varietals for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, 
they now you know they want the patents on them, um, and that's been encouraged by the land grant universities, of course, because they want the revenue from mm-hmm. the patents. And so there's been a lot of like kind of legal battles over these cultivars. There's been a couple times where where you see uh, breeders have left to go start up their own private breeding entities, and uh, and the Strawberry Commission, who's the growers' organization, hasn't liked that, and it's it's been a it's been a bit of a mess. Yeah. Um, okay. So I would like to end on a positive note because <laughs> yeah. it is very complex, um, that I feel like, um, can seem overwhelming. You, um, talk about a great example, although an example that kind of can only. The exception that proves the rule. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly. Yes. The exception <laughs> that proves the rule. Um, tell us about Swanton Berry Farm. Yeah, so that's the, the Halley's berries of the North. Um, yeah. it's, they're quite different than Halley's berries. I mean, they're, they are the exception of, that proves the rule. And I can't tell you, there's probably several books that end with a use of Swanton Berry Farms, and I kind of refuse to end with it even though I did, <laughs> um, because it's the exception that proves all the rules. Because if, if the biggest challenges are, um, well, let me just put it this way. Um, I told you that the, the challenge of land will... Swanton Berry Farm is grown on conservation easement land, and and it's so it's cheaper. They also grow strawberries away from the main regions where there's a lot of um, where there's a lot of disease. Um, they are a, a union shop. Um, it's the first and only strawberry grower or organic grower to become union, um, and so they don't have a problem attracting workers. Um, but they also are sell to a group of very dedicated consumers that are willing to pay the higher prices of um, union labor. And they grow a varietal called the Chandler that's off patent. So they're not growing varieties that you have to pay um, licensing fees for. And it happens to be a very delicious variety, but also doesn't ship well. So a lot of the varieties that grower, most growers are doing are, are designed to be shipped because they go all over the United States. So basically, very difficult to replicate. <laughs> very difficult to replicate. Um, well, what can listeners do? You know, like if we wanted, you know, I, everyone always says vote with your fork, which I fir- firmly believe. So is this, would that kind of apply in this situation? Is there something that, you know, our listeners can be doing I'm not a big fork voter fan. No? Uh, I, <laughs> I'm like, tell me. No. Tell me why. <laughs> because I don't think that that, I mean, I don't think the issue is, like, for, in, for instance, just stopping to eat strawberries because they're a problem. Because there's all, you know, you can go up and down the food chain and you wouldn't find, not up and down the food chain, but you can go through an array of crops and products and, and livestock and you'd find salt with them. I mean, I just think that we need to put more pressure on regulatory bodies mm-hmm. to do more technology forcing um, uh, regulations. So we we start growing differently. We need to encourage our land grant institutions and scientists to help support biodiverse ways of producing food. Um, all sorts of things like that that are more in the political realm than the consumption realm. Um, that's. That's great. I also, you know, this is like the one episode that I didn't talk about how I'm the biggest fan of regulation. So thank you for teeing that up so I can make sure to incorporate it in this episode because it is like literally in everyone. So, I mean, (laughs) so I agree. That's wonderful. (laughs) 
Okay, sounds good. Um, all right, last, very last question, I promise. Where can listeners um, get a copy of your fabulous book? Uh, well, you can uh, order it from Uni- University of California Press or on Amazon. Okay, great. Go to yeah, go to UC great, Press. It'd be great. It would be great to order it from University of California Press. I'm sure they'd appreciate the direct sale. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's a it is a wonderful uh, institution. Amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. All right. Well, Julie, thank you so much for taking the time um, on your Sunday afternoon to chat with with me. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. <laughs> All right. Thanks. I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsors and our show engineer, the one and only Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are on the HRN website or as a podcast podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.